Uh, just to introduce myself, I'm John Skeet. Hi. Um, obviously, we can take questions about C-sharp 8 stuff you know, anytime during the talk uh, or at the end. Uh, but while we're waiting for the projector stuff to come up, uh, I thought it might make sense to have a bit of a Q&A pre-session. Um, so does anyone have any questions on basically anything, whether it's C-sharp, .NET ecosystem, feminism, yeah, whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a question. You're a big fan of C-sharp, so I was wondering what part of C-sharp do you really dislike? Is there anything you hate about it? Ah, uh, good question. What things do I like about C-sharp? Um, so, there are things I dislike but can't think of anything better. So one is overload resolution. Um, overload resolution is the nexus of evil when it comes to C-sharp because it's so darn complicated and every single new feature needs to think about how does this affect overload re resolution? Um, it's really, really difficult. By the time you've got inheritance and extension methods and importing methods via using static directives, you know, just this morning, someone was asking me why something wouldn't compile, and I was like, well, it tries to find it without using using static directives before it does overload resolution. Um, but that's really hard to get away from overload resolution as a necess necessary evil. Um, there are things that I think are kind of plain wrong, so double numeric literals that don't have a suffix default to double. And I think if they didn't default to anything, so you always have to say you know, 0.1D or 0.1M, um, then that would produce more of a level playing field between double and decimal. So it would encourage people to use decimal when most of the time that's probably what they want. Um, another alternative could have been that they used decimal by default, um, which would have been an interesting way to go, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, the other thing is, uh, classes should be sealed by default. It's just the way it should be. Um, design for inheritance or prohibited, and designing for inheritance takes effort, so let's default, uh, default to prohibiting it and say that you know, I want an overridable class. Um, that's a very, very common. If half of you don't agree with me on that, that's absolutely fine and to be expected. Uh, I would be fairly shocked if everyone in the room did agree on that one. Um, it is controversial. Uh, most of what I'll be talking about today is relatively non-controversial, you know, null references cause problems. Yeah, we all kind of get that. Um, other things, I kind of wish that C-sharp hadn't been released until we got generics, because then we wouldn't have the non-generic I enumerable, probably. Um, and, you know, a load of the collection classes that you don't use hash table and array list these days, you always use dictionary and list of T. Um, so that would have, I can see how that could have cost in terms of industry adoption and things, um, but from a, a more academic perspective, that would have been nice. Uh, for the most part, I think it's a really nicely designed language. Um, dynamic kind of creeps me out a bit. It's weird. If they put dynamic in from the start, they might have been able to make some different decisions. Dynamic is clearly added later on. Uh, those are all the ones I can think of immediately. But if I remember any more later on, I will you know, cut back to this question. Any other questions? Yeah? I asked you earlier for the audience. Um, you're obviously sitting in front of a very diverse audience here. <laughs> uh, can you say a few words about your daisy ships and experiment for us? Right. Uh, so the question was, um, 
as I'm in front of such a diverse audience, uh, could I say a bit about the Daisy Shipton experiment? Um, for those of you who don't know, if you don't know anything about me, um, then I post quite a, quite a lot on Stack Overflow. Um, if you don't know what Stack Overflow is, then it's a software Q&A. Um, there's no reason to say that everyone should. Um, and in the end of March, it was uh, the day before Easter, in fact, um, I started posting under a new user called Daisy Shipton. And the reason for this was, uh, if you're familiar with Stack Overflow, lots of people love Stack Overflow, lots of people hate Stack Overflow, and those who hate it tend to say that it's run by elitist moderators who um, just want to downvote and close every question in the world. Um, and if you love it, you, you tend to say that you know, there are loads of lazy users who are awful and terrible people who should just you know, leave software entirely. Um, the reality is there are an awful lot of people who don't know how to ask a question. There are also a lot of people who don't know how to tell people that don't know how to ask a good question you don't know how to ask a good question without making them feel bad. Um, and both of those are problematic. Uh, one of the things that has changed me most in the last uh, four years or so um, is learning far more about feminism. And that has led me to hopefully be more compassionate and realize how much I don't know about other people's perspectives. And I can definitely see that if you are coming to Stack Overflow, as a really new developer, you could write what you might think is a reasonable question, and it's not a reasonable question, but it's not your fault that you don't know that yet. Um, so we need to be better at communicating, um, you know, I have respect for you as a person, the question in its current form doesn't belong on Stack Overflow, either it shouldn't be here at all because it belongs on a different site or on Quora or whatever, or you need to work through to improve things. Learning how to say that in a respectful way is difficult. Um, and to get back to Daisy Shipton, someone on a Twitter thread around Stack Overflow culture said, you should try posting on Stack Overflow as a new user with a female sounding name. Um, you'd get a very different reception. So I thought, okay, challenge accepted. Um, <laughs> So I created Daisy Shipton, and she didn't post any questions, uh, which is an experiment I want to do separately, because it's mostly people have a bad experience if they ask questions. Um, so if any of you, how many of you have asked a question on Stack Overflow? Good. Uh, how many of you have used other people's answers on Stack Overflow? Yes, okay. Um, so one problem that Stack Overflow has at the moment is it, it only values good questions at half the value of good answers. And that's just wrong. Uh, it gives the impression that there's this you know, two-tier cast system of answerers are better than questioners. And it also suggests that it's easier to ask a good question than it is to provide a good answer. And that's just wrong. Um, so I would very much like Stack Overflow to, to make those level playing fields in terms of the reputation gain. Um, so I didn't ask any questions as Daisy want to at some point, although not as Daisy, I will create a new user, um, probably again with a female sounding name, possibly with a name that doesn't sound like I'm English. Um, see what happens, possibly use the you know, user 4132, whatever, that comes up by default, sound as anonymous as I can. Um, but I wanted to post answers as Daisy, and if anyone read Daisy's answers, and thought, that sounds remarkably like John Skeet, then 
they would find it very easy to verify this. And exactly one person did. One person emailed me and said, this sounds really weird, but are you Daisy Shipton? I was like, well done. <laughs> nice to know. Um, and that came through. There was one question that I answered with, that's a really interesting question. First, you need to turn to this bit of the C-sharp specification. Strangely enough, it was about overload resolution. Um, and then you need to find the best function member according to this bit of the specification. And I was using the ECMA standard um, section numbers because I do, because I'm the convener for the ECMA standardization thing. And I, I want to promote the open standard rather than the Microsoft specification. Um, and I think when the person read that, uh, they thought, this sounds familiar. Um, why didn't John post on this? Oh, John hasn't posted anything in six months. Um, and that's when Daisy Shipton started. And Daisy seems to be posting on Google Cloud Client Libraries and Protocol Buffers and Node Time and the C-sharp language. Yeah, there's something going on. Um, so it was really easy. I was not trying to cover my tracks. Uh, I did not make up a backstory for Daisy at all. Uh, her profile just said, I love coding in C-sharp. No fake um, uh, photo. <coughs> and crucially, I posted the exact same content Apart from if I reference Node Time, I might say, you know, the way that you do this in Node Time, or perhaps you should use Node Time rather than perhaps you should use my project Node Time. So I, I didn't give things away that way um, and didn't refer to blogs <coughs> that I've written as much. But apart from that, it was in the same tone. So it was partly an experiment to see uh, how other Stack Overflow users would react to the same content, but not with the Jonski tag, as it were. Um, and it turned out it was pretty. They reacted pretty well. So I got to 12,000 reputation uh, before asking for the, the um, profiles to be merged. And it was, you know, sadly enough, when they were merged, the John Skeet profile gained about 5,000 reputation because all the rest was swallowed by the RepCap, as it tends to be. Um, so that was only part of an experiment. Uh, it, it showed a little bit about if you post with John Skeet style content, then it doesn't matter what name you use and whether you've got reputation. That's not the same as saying that uh, there isn't a problem with sexism on Stack Overflow, there isn't a problem of discrimination against new users on Stack Overflow, it's just, it's not as simple as one thing that you can pick out. Um, cool, I think that's probably everything on, on Daisy. But feel free to ask any more details. Any other questions? Yeah? How do you feel like the evolution of language is going now? Oh. Right, so how do I feel about the, the sort of process for the um, language thing? Um, so C-sharp design happens um, in a room in Microsoft. And as it happens, I was invited to go to a language design meeting either next Monday or next Wednesday, because I'm in Seattle. Unfortunately, I won't quite have landed when it happens on the Monday and on Wednesday, I'll be in other meetings. Um, so that's, you know, that might not have happened a few years ago. Uh, so it's not strictly restricted to Microsoft employees, although I think it usually is um, only Microsoft folks. Um, they publish the design meeting notes, but pretty much it's Mads and his team um, coming up with good ideas, trying them, getting reaction from uh, the language design meeting, but then also putting those ideas out for the wider world. And that's the difference, I think. Um, not that the language design meeting notes are online. Those are useful, but it's there are Roslyn uh, GitHub repo issues saying, 
this is the syntax we're proposing for whatever. What's your feedback? And um, boy, have they had a lot of feedback. Uh, so yeah, they, I think they're somewhat overwhelmed with how many suggestions there have been and response to other, uh, to their own plans. Um, I rather like the benevolent dictator model. Uh, I think it works a lot better than Java's design by committee model that basically stalled the Java language for years and years and years. Um, it's better than the kitchen sink model, which it could be that Groovy's in a good place now. Um, I haven't written Groovy for many years, um, but when I was helping out on the Groovy in Action book, it felt like a, a kitchen sink of a language. It's, someone had an idea saying, hey, this would be really cool, and people said, yeah, that would be cool, let's stick it in. And so you ended up without a consistent style, <coughs> excuse me, without a consistent style um, and sort of design force. And while um, Mads is now the design force behind uh, C Sharp, having sort of taken over from Anders Halesberg, that doesn't mean all the um, ideas come from Mads, but it's got a tone, it's got a certain voice. Um, certain ideas may be rejected because they go away from the style of C Sharp. They wouldn't feel like C Sharp anymore. So I think the model is working really well. Uh, I do have concerns, and I've had concerns for many years now, that C Sharp's a really big language. Um, I was writing the part openers for the fourth edition of C Sharp in depth just over the weekend, and I realized how much I love C Sharp 6 um, as a, a new set of features. They're all really simple to describe, the features, apart from exception filters, which are the, and that's the, the feature that no one uses, it's fine. But you've got interpolated strings, really easy to use. Uh, you've got expression body members, yay, everyone feels like an F-sharp programmer. And various other things that just make your life better in simple to understand ways, and that's great. But then you look at other features like async and await. Now, don't get me wrong, I love async and await, but it's one feature that took me about 100 pages to write about uh, when I rewrote the, the coverage for C-sharp in depth here. In most chapters, I have several features per chapter. In this, I had one feature over two chapters. Um, and it's incredibly useful and hugely complicated. And that would be fine if it were only used in complicated scenarios. So you know, I have some of the same concerns around the, uh, the ref stuff in C-sharp 7.mumble. Um, by ref, uh, ref locals, ref returns, ref read only, etc. Um, ref structs. So that's complicated stuff, but that's okay because it's kind of niche. <clears throat> the trouble is, async is not niche anymore. Okay. Um, I'm giving a talk in four weeks um, that I need to start writing quite soon about how we learn programming languages, um, what are the difficulties, and if we were starting from scratch, what would, how would we design a language that was designed for production usage, but also designed as a language which was easy to learn? Ideally, easy to learn as a first language. That's a really hard problem, because with C-sharp, <clears throat> I, would, I would normally teach, if I were teaching my kids, and I, I've tried a bit, but we haven't really had enough time, um, I would teach them the basics of the language first, so you've got classes and etc. And I would force them to write console apps to start with, uh, because they're simple, and you don't need to understand UI frameworks and things. The trouble is, as soon as you do get into UI frameworks or web services or you know, almost anything, 
for vaguely real applications. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you end up needing async. And at that point, your world falls apart. If you don't understand relatively simple things, inheritance and the like, how on earth are you going to get your head around async? So I think that's a real problem. And as the language gets bigger and bigger, it will become more of a problem. Uh, the nullable reference types that I may or may not be talking about today. Oh, I think that's encouraging. Um, uh, suddenly an umbrella comes and pulls me off Nullable reference types are going to be confusing to new developers. I've kept up with language because I've started writing in C Sharp 1. Um, you know, back in 2002, so it's not been hard to keep up with the changes. But if I were a new CS grad or a teenager or whatever it is, starting to learn C-sharp now, it's, it's a really hard thing. And picking out which bits of the language you can say, I'll leave that to one side for the moment. Obviously, you leave dynamic well alone until you understand the type system that you have got fully. And that's fine, because you're not likely to see code that uses dynamic. Whereas if you try to write a game using Xamarin or whatever, um, you're going to see async and go, my head explodes. Um, so I think that's a problem. And general size of language is a problem. Other than that, I like process. So these are very long answers to very short questions. Um, and it's not because I'm stalling for time. <clears throat> I always run out of time, whatever I'm talking about. OK. Uh, do we have any more questions or would, yeah, well, I'll take one more and then I will start trying to talk about, talk through C Sharp 8, which it'll be an interesting experience for me at least, hopefully for you as well. Yeah? What are your thoughts on F Sharp? What are my thoughts on F Sharp? Uh, I should probably learn this at some point. Um, no, it's really embarrassing. Uh, there's a, a book that I suspect is probably good uh, called Real World Functional Programming uh, by a guy called Thomas Petrachek and John Skeet. Um, yeah, so Tomasz wrote pretty much all of it. Um, I then turned, he's, is he Czech? I think he's originally from Czechoslovakia, um, as was Czech Republic. Uh, so I sort of smoothed over some of his English in a way that a copy editor might not have been able to because it required the technical background as well. And I also took, have you ever noticed that if you're reading a book about Python, say, and it pits it against some other language, it will give horrible examples of the other language and beautiful examples of Python. Um, so Tomás was occasionally saying, look how awful C-sharp is. It's like, well, yeah, if you write that code, that's not the code I would write. So I kind of improved some of the examples there um, and you know, edited the rest. But I don't know F-sharp. I kind of get the feeling I would like it, probably, but I don't have a project to do with it at the moment. And I, I know myself well enough that um, I would fail if I tried to learn it just for fun without something concrete to learn, uh, to, to produce with it. I've been wondering whether an F-sharp oriented and written in version of no design might be quite interesting, because the, the sort of date and time um, <coughs> domain feels like it should um, lend itself to functional programming quite well. <coughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm quite keen on it. 
I'm very, very keen on F-sharp for one particular reason, which is it's made C-sharp significantly better. Um, the C-sharp team shamelessly borrows from F-sharp, and that's fantastic. F-sharp has experimented and pushed, it, pushed back boundaries and said, hey, look how you can do this, even on the CLR. And the C-sharp team said, yep, I'll have some of that. Um, and I'll make it slightly less general purpose and monadic and all kinds of, yeah, basically make it so that you can use it without a PhD, um, whilst limiting its usability. So if you look at um, async, asynchronous workflows existed in F-sharp long before C-sharp and didn't have some of the restrictions that C-sharp had, like until C-sharp 7, you could only return task or task of T or void from an async method. Didn't have that restriction in F-sharp, but in order to not have that restriction, they had to make it a bit more complicated. Um, so C-sharp sort of makes it more accessible and has done that with several features and I think that's great and there are probably more C-sharp developers or C-sharp developers have probably benefited from F-sharp more than F-sharp developers have just because there are so many more of us. Okay, uh, let's talk about C-sharp 8. So, first thing is timing. Uh, it's now September 2018. Uh, I'm confident, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty confident that in September 2019, C-sharp 8 will not have been released. Um, I suspect there may be a beta 1, a Visual Studio 16 beta 1 that comes with C-sharp 8 support. Um, and that would be good. That's, I think, a fairly aggressive timeline. We know some things that are going to be in C-sharp 8, and they're the things I have demos for. Um, if you want to look at any of the code, not, well, not now unless you really want to be looking at GitHub on a phone, um, if you go to github.com slash jskeet slash demo code, um, then everything is there or will be when I push you know, any extra code up there uh, later on. Um, so you can later on try to work out, yep, that maps to what John was saying earlier on. <clears throat> so we, we have some features in preview. It's very likely that those features will be implemented, but that's still not certain either. And it's highly likely that there will be some features that aren't in the previews uh, that will, be, will turn up in the end. So, um, at the moment, my understanding is that it's still the case that there are three different preview versions. One of them has nullable reference types. One of them has switch expressions and enhanced pattern matching. And one of them has some bits of the new async language support. But there is no build that has all of them. Um, I handily have all three installed in different Visual Studio hives on my laptop, and those don't interfere with my regular installation. Um, but my point is it's all still a bit hairy. Um, if you're happy to wait for a preview that comes with an actual installer instead of here's a v6 and a script that may or may not work, um, then I would, I would wait. <clears throat> um, the feature that you probably want most, that I would say is 80 to 90% certain will happen, is not all reference types. So, historically, we have had 
nullable reference types, and that all reference types you can always assign a null value. We've had non-nullable value types, and in C-sharp 2 we gained nullable value types. All with me so far? This is where it gets slightly strange. So the C-sharp team has been very good about not breaking people in the past. C-sharp 8 changes the meaning of all of your code. Every time, all of your code now refers to non-nullable reference types. At least if you've got the feature turned on. <clears throat> I don't know yet whether it'll be turned on by default. Um, there are very interesting problems around what it means for it to be turned on. Um, and how much of your code it wants to be turned on for. So if you're consuming a library that is nullable reference type aware, but you're not, what does that mean? What happens if it's the other way around? <coughs> it all gets quite strange. And this is one of the reasons that I don't think it's going to be released this time next year, because there are hard problems still to solve. So, um, I mentioned that all of your code now means, now refers to non-nullable reference types. A non-nullable reference type is a reference type where you have at least an encouraging suggestion that the value of a variable of that type will not be null. This is in no way the same as a non-nullable value type where you have a cast iron guarantee as guaranteed by the runtime that the value will not be null. It just couldn't be there aren't the right bits. Um, a non-nullable reference type, the compiler will attempt to stop you from putting a null value in there. It may or may not be successful, and this has a knock-on effect in the code that you write. So, all of your existing code has changed to be non-nullable reference types. If you have string x equals call some method, <coughs> then that method should return a non-null value. What if you want it to return a null value? Well, suddenly we have a new way of writing a type which is a nullable reference type. So that's why the feature is called nullable reference types, even though it sounds like that's what we've had all the time. Yep, we have had that, it's just that the meaning of your code has entirely changed in c -sharp 8. Um, it shouldn't be any surprise, the syntax that was chosen to make a nullable reference type, you put a question mark on the end of the type name, just as you do for non-nullable value types to become nullable value types. So if you do string question mark x equals call some method, then that method can return a null reference. And presumably that method has been declared to return string question mark instead of string. Okay, so it flows all through the type system, return types, parameters, um, local variables, but there's something different about the typing here compared with everything else. Usually, what the compiler checks, if you call some method, it, at binding time, works out, right, what's the declared type of foo? You know, you're calling foo.bar, right, what's the declared type of the variable foo? I will then perform binding, look up what bar means in that context. And the binding stuff still happens as normal, but if C-sharp is going to warn you, if the C-sharp compiler is going to warn you, if you may be dereferencing a, a null reference, 
it needs to think about, it needs more information about whether the value of foo can be null. So you could have a declaration string foo equals whatever. And in that case, most of the time, uh, the compiler will not warn you that it could be null because you said, hey, it's going to be non-null. There are some times where it may warn you that foo.bar could fail if it's also warned you earlier on. Hey, you seem to be calling a method that's declared to return string question mark and you're assigning it into a string, non-nullable string variable. Um, yeah, that could cause a problem and then that problem could cause another problem later on. That's one side which is weird, but actually it's the reverse that's much more interesting. Suppose you have a method, <coughs> um, get length or zero, that takes string question mark text. Okay? What would a normal implementation for that look like? You'd say if text equals null, if double equals null, return zero. And then otherwise return text.length. Now that text.length, if the compiler were naive, it would say, hang on, that could be null. If the compiler only did that, it would be a horrible, horrible feature because anything you ever did with any nullable reference type would be hard to use. Um, so what the compiler actually does is at every point in your program, for every local variable and parameter, it keeps track of whether it thinks it can be null or not. So by default, if it's a string question mark, then yes, it thinks that can be null. If it's a string, it thinks that can't be null. But if you've checked whether text is null already, then it remembers that for later on in the, in the code, in the code path um, that will be taken in the else. So if you've returned if text is null, then you should know it's fine. <coughs> That bit is already working. There are two problems. One is that's never going to be 100% successful without also being uh, unfortunately problematic. Um, imagine you take a variable by reference, so ref string question mark text, and you take an action. And you'll find an example of this in the demo code. Um, you can say if if text is null, return. Otherwise, execute the action and then print out text.length. That sounds great. Until you call it with a method that um, has an action that changes the value of text, which it can do because it's by ref. Okay. Should the compiler handle that? Well, it can't possibly know what the action is going to do. So it would have to say, well, anytime I call any code, if I've got a ref parameter, I've no idea whether that is going to be null or not after the method call. That's probably not useful, because that, that ref parameter could come from anywhere, and you're just calling console.writeline. As far as the compiler's aware, that console.writeline could end up calling back into your code and setting the field to null. Weird stuff happens. So it's um, fairly liberal on that front. On the other hand, there are times where you know that something isn't null, but the compiler doesn't. So I gave an example of if text is null. Um, that's 
one way of checking whether something is null, and the compiler knows about that. What about if, in this get, get length for zero method, we instead did if string dot is null or empty text, return zero. Otherwise, return text dot length. Okay? We know, as humans, that if string dot is null or empty returns false, then the input was neither null nor empty. We don't care about the emptiness, but we know it's not null. So if we don't return immediately, we should be able to take text.length without a warning. Here there are two options. One, the compiler could have baked in information about string.isNull or empty, and maybe object.reference equals, and various other things that the, uh, the, the language provides or the, the base framework provides. That would be an awful solution, because it would mean that third-party libraries who have something just like isNull or empty but for their own types, would be at a disadvantage. So what's going to happen, probably, is the C-sharp team is inventing a little mini-language that will be used in attributes. So you'll have something like a nullability rule attribute, where you say, you know, if I return false, that means this bit of the input was definitely not null. If I return in a different method, if I return false, then that definitely was null. You provide extra information. Now, I only found out about this as a possibility back in June. Um, I haven't seen any public specification for it yet, um, or any specification at all. And designing a whole extra language just for the sake of this is a big deal. <coughs> so that's why I think it will be 2020 before we actually see C-sharp 8. However, I don't want to sound, I, I'm very aware I keep on telling you about problems. Um, I think this will be a fantastic thing if they can get it right. I have applied all of this to Node Time and the process went something like this. Uh, open up the Node Time solution and see hundreds of warnings, okay? Notice time, I had already added my own attributes that didn't really do anything useful um, other than to tell me as the author, right, I'm expecting this to not be null, or this might be null, or I can return this null value. So I just took all of those attributes and applied the appropriate um, you know, add a question mark or not. That got it down to you know, 150 warnings, something like that. I fixed those 150 warnings, going through them, mostly by hand, and then I was up to about 120 warnings. I fixed those warnings, and then I was also back up to 120 warnings. Um, I did four or five iterations of this. It took me probably about three hours. Um, Node Time is a medium-sized project. It's uh, not huge by any means. It's not enterprise kind of hundreds of thousands, millions of lines of code, um, but it's non-trivial. But it's worth understanding the reason that it takes time to do this. So the compiler is going to warn you, only, it only gives warnings, it never gives errors at the moment uh, for null reference, nullable reference violations, as it were. But it's like playing whack-a-mole. You say, okay, uh, I see this warning over here, that says, I'm passing a null literal into the constructor over here that's then being, uh, well, 
just, just that is the problem. So I'm calling a constructor, and the parameter is the type string, but I'm passing in the null literal. OK, I want to be able to do that. This is my existing working code. I will assume that I've done the right thing. So I will make that parameter string question mark. OK, one warning gone. Up pops a warning saying, you're now trying to assign the value of that parameter into a property of type string. OK, well, that should probably be nullable then. Add the nullable flag. That warning goes away. Now you have five different warnings from anything that was trying to use that property. So when you get hold of this, whenever it is, um, expect this, expect churn, expect huge commits uh, that consist almost entirely of question marks. <laughs> um, question marks and exclamation marks, which I'll come to in a minute. But that's just because the information flows through the system and it flows through one point at a time. But when you're done, you will have so much more information in your system. You will know whether or not it's safe. You won't be adding checks everywhere saying, oh, I better check whether this is null. There's no documentation that says whether or not it can be. I don't really want to look at the implementation. I don't want to trust that the implementation won't change. Well, when you've when everything in your system has all of this enabled, you can then be reasonably confident. Now, that would suggest that you could get rid of a load of your code. I'm sure all of you are very diligent at uh, documenting this parameter must not be null, and then starting your method saying, um, if it's null, throw argument null exception. Or in my case with no time, I have just preconditions.checknotNull uh, name, name of name. The name of operator is wonderful. Um, if you don't already have that, start doing that now. Do not use C-sharp 8 as an excuse saying, oh, it's okay, we, we don't need null checking anymore because the compiler's doing it all for us. The compiler does stuff at compile time. The meaning of your code at execution time doesn't currently change at all. And you still want, if someone does pass null, either because they don't have the C-sharp 8 compiler, or because they've got a warning and they just don't care, um, or it's being invoked with reflection, or whatever it is, the compiler isn't currently adding in validation, and you want that exception as quickly as you can. There's something that the that Mouse has talked about, which is being able to write um, simplified code, so you do string, text, exclamation mark. And that says, text should not be null. Please validate it for me. So it stops, that would stop you having to write all those preconditions dot check not null. Um, but it's a, a lot easier to replace existing ones, you know, remove that line of code, add an exclamation mark, remove that line of code, add an exclamation mark, than it is to, well, I, I don't know whether this should or shouldn't be, so I'll just kind of leave it, and no validation happens. So you, you definitely do want to be validating, and it turns out that that validation may be simpler later on. The exclamation mark has um, another use in C sharp 8, which is as the dammit operator. That's not the official name. Um, I can't remember the official name, but I'm pretty sure I'll always remember the dammit name. Um, and the dammit operator just says, look, I know you don't think it's 
uh, you think it might be null. I know it isn't, damn it. Um, so it's, it's a way of saying, please just trust this. So that's one way that um, people can <laughs> violate things already. You know, even if your code compiles without warnings, it may be because someone's using the dammit operator and they may be wrong. Uh, in particular, I've mostly used the dammit operator in tests where I'm testing that I do validate what happens if I get null input. Well, if I just call in my test, the test, um, you know, some method dot, uh, sorry, some class dot, do method that can't accept null, and you pass in null, well, the compiler's gonna say, you're not allowed to pass in null. It's like, I know, I'm trying to prove that the validation works. So you do null, exclamation mark, and it says, oh yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Um, and you assert that that throws argument null exception. Um, there are some corner cases to work out still, apart from this whole mini-language thing. Imagine, if you will, a class foo of t. t is a type parameter. Can you write a property t value, get and set here, public, a public property of type t called value? Is that ever null? What does it mean for it to not be null? If I have a foo of string, can I construct a foo of string? If, I, if your class consisted entirely of just that property, so you got the, the default constructor, should foo compile? Well, foo of string is gonna have a value property that is null by default. So in that sense, it probably shouldn't. But equally, maybe you're using foo with int, at which point it's fine. Um, can you write a property that is t question mark? What the heck does that mean? What does that mean if I have a foo of string question mark? Do I now have string question mark question mark? It's like, I don't even know whether it might be null or not. I honestly don't know what the answer is going to be for that. Basically, generics and null reference types do not play well together. Um, existing interfaces don't play terribly well either. There's the I equality comparer, that's the one. Um, I equatable is okay, but I equality comparer has two methods, equals and get hash code. And equals is uh, guaranteed, uh, as in you're meant to implement it, so that it can handle null. If you call equals null comma null, that should return true. If you return if you call equals null comma anything non-null, that should return false. Great. If you call um, get hash code and pass in null, that should throw an argument null exception. You're not allowed to pass in a null value into get hash code. Okay, that's a bit weird to have. Say you're implementing high equality comparer of string. If you did equals string string, then that shouldn't accept nulls because you're using the non-nullable reference type as the parameter. <coughs> but get hash code um, is okay because that's going to throw if if the parameter is null. That makes sense because you said it's not null. Okay, so that's that's the situation where equals doesn't work and get hash code does. So if equals isn't working with 
I equality compare of string. Maybe we should implement I equality compare of string question mark instead. We then have equals string question mark, string question mark. Great, I can pass in nulls. It makes perfect sense to allow that and return true or false, whatever. But then you've got get hash code, which accepts string question mark value. So that's saying, I'm friendly to nulls. All will be well. You pass in null, it throws argument null exception. Fundamentally, this is an interface that was designed in a pre-nullable reference type era. Just doesn't make sense with nullable reference types. So I don't know what the heck they're going to do about that. Um, that is all that I can brain dump about nullable reference types without actually showing you some code. Um, but hopefully you get, you get the idea that this will save you from null reference exceptions, but more importantly, out of interest, how many times do you actually run across a null exception, null reference exception? Once a month, once a week, once a year? It's, I would say for me, it's probably about once a month. It's pretty rare, okay? I don't want a huge language feature just to save me from an exception once a month. But I still love null reference types because they do so much more than that. They allow me to express the meaning, the semantics that I'm trying to convey within code instead of in documentation. At the moment I have documentation saying, this parameter must not be null. I hate comments that have semantic meaning that should be captured in the code. Null reference types let me capture it in the code. <coughs> so I'm quite gung-ho about null, re null reference types. Um, and I'd urge you to think about them more in terms of information propagation and helping you um, think more cleanly about your model. I'll go back to my notetime example in a sec. But think more cleanly about your domain model and about what your methods actually do rather than thinking about null reference exceptions. Yes, it stops you from getting null reference exceptions, but only because it's making that information more apparent. Back in node time, I did find one bug. Um, it turns out timezoneinfo.local uh, returns null on some versions of mono on Android. I can't remember what. And we had a bug report about this, so I had fixed it. But it turns out I only fixed it in node time in one part. And the way I found that out was by running through this process of find the bugs, find the bugs, uh, or fix the warnings rather, fix the warnings, and there was this one warning that I couldn't fix. I could whack it in one place and it would come up again in another, and if I whacked it in that place, it came back up where it started. And at that point, you know that your model has a logical problem, that you are asserting in some places that it must not be null, and in some places that it, that it might be null. Expect that to happen, and it means at some pass, at some point in the past, you have been non-perfect. Okay? If that is a surprise to any of you, uh, then you know, maybe you're all just much, much better than me. Um, but I certainly wasn't surprised that I found some bugs. I was quite surprised that that was the only one I found in over time. Um, there may have been others that you know, better tooling will find over time. So expect it to ferret out some problems that are lurking in your code. Expect it to make your code far more expressive, and it might also fix some exceptions. Uh, that's probably all about C sharp. Uh, sorry, about um, 
Noble reference types. Any questions on that before we move on to another topic? Yeah. Uh, so that iterative process you did there, how much do you think could be automated on that? Sorry, how much do I think? Of that could be automated. Oh, how much could be automated? Um, <clears throat> probably none. Yeah. Um, so I automate it to some extent because I use find and replace. Um, that's a level of automation. Um, interns are probably a, another good one. <laughs> um, no, you should always use interns for the projects that you wish you had time to do because they're really interesting ones. Um, give them a good experience and they'll come back and be awesome at you. Uh, no, the reason it can't be automated is because the information isn't there. Um, unless you have been so I was able to do some find and replace in, I think I had a fairly horrible regular expression, but basically I did a regular expression match for where I was using my this might be null or this can be null attribute. I was able to find the type and add a question mark and remove the can be null because it's pointless at that point. Um, so if you already have that information in your system, then you probably can automate putting it somewhere else. So if you really diligently mark all your parameters that can be null using exactly the same comment everywhere, then you can probably automate and find those comments. You know, rather than search and replace, you might use Roslyn to do it. Um, it may take you longer to use Roslyn to do it than to do it by hand. Um, but you can probably find those and put question marks in. But in general, unless you've already got the information there, the benefit of C-sharp 8 is that you can express things that you couldn't express before, um, or at least couldn't express clean. So if you've got a dirty representation, you may be able to clean that up. If you haven't got any representation, which is the case for most code bases I've seen, then you're adding information to the system, and anything automated that tries to add information, I'm extremely wary of. Um, so <clears throat> you probably could automate your um, some task that would make it compile without warnings by saying everything can be null and I will check everything before doing anything and that will get rid of all the warnings or maybe you know, it makes everything nullable and adds the dammit operator to any time it dereferences things and that won't have helped you at all. Um, so the non-automating bit is it involves thinking, saying Did I, should this ever return null? If it's a virtual method, might an override return null? Even if it's non-virtual, okay, I can see it doesn't return null at the moment. Might I ever want to logically return null in the future? Um, and you can't automate that kind of thinking. So yeah, uh, when C-sharp 8 comes along, <coughs> I would strongly encourage you to think about setting some, some time aside to do this ideally company-wide and this is me making up strategy as I go along, by the way. Um, but do it company-wide. You know, set aside a week or two weeks or whatever. You know, get someone to prototype and see how long it's going to take. And then do it in one big bang. Um, and have war rooms for you. Know, like, I've got this problem I don't know how to resolve it. Because it may or may not be that there's some discrepancy between different bits of the system. Get everyone talking to each other, which is always a good thing. Um, and get it done quickly. 
If you leave it a long time, or if you try to do it piecemeal, it won't work nearly as well. So uh, if you, I, I don't yet know what the compiler will do. I suspect it will be forgiving. I suspect if you're in a C-sharp 8 library or application, and you call into a C-sharp 7 library, and you call a method and return, uh, assign the return value into a string variable, I suspect the compiler will say, do you know what, I don't know whether that's okay or not, but I'll kind of assume that it is, because if I assume that it's not, then the code ends up being horrible. So you don't get nearly as much benefit when only half the system is there. Um, so try to do it big bang. Um, and I think you'll find it a somewhat cathartic experience. So yeah, look forward to that. Cool, any other questions on novel reference? Yeah. How much does it slow down your build times? How much does it slow down compile times? Um, I have no idea, but I would imagine that the Rosin team is uh, tracking that really, really closely. They care a lot. Um, I suspect not very much because, yeah, it needs to keep track of something for every variable, every local variable at every point in the code, but it already has to do that for definite assignments already, and I don't think it's doing It's not something that changes with as the as the code gets bigger and bigger. Um, when you make a change to say something is nullable, yes, it needs to find all the things that were referring to that. But when it's just doing a, a flat compile, all its decisions are relatively local ones um, as to you know, should I should I deem this to be nullable or not is a fairly local thing. So it should scale reasonably well. So it, it may be the little suck away 2% of compile time, but it'll be a steady 2% rather than 2%, or 4% if you've got a reasonably large thing, or 10%, or just give up if you've got 100,000 lines of code or whatever. Um, sorry, I don't mean to imply that 100,000 lines of code is a really large project. I know it's not. Um, yeah, good question though. Uh, there was another question? Yeah. Um, so this seems like a pretty wrenching change to the type system in a fun way. Right. But do you imagine that probably get like 80-20 by they just, them just adding an option type to the BCL. I mean, not a bad one, like the Java one. <laughs> right, so the question was, uh, this is a huge change. Could we get uh, a long way just by adding an option type to the BCL? Um, the problem is there's an awful lot of code out there and you can't change it. So unless you assume that every library you ever use, including the BCL, um, well, let's just let's just take the BCL. Sorry, what's the BCL? Uh, sorry, base class library. Um, so MS Core Lib and you know, System.Link, System.Collections, etc. Um, everything you get out of the box. Well, there are levels of discrimination in there, but we won't bother with them. So let's. Uh, what's an example of something that might return null? Um, It's crazy just trying to think of, of things there aren't. Dictionary try get with the out parameter requires to initialize. Uh, yeah, that's a, a, oh, that, that uses generics. That's going to be eek. Um, let's let's take um, file.parent. File.parent. Well, you know, directory info.parent. Okay. Or well, yeah, um, type.base type, okay, which will return null for object. 
that's got to uh, type dot base type has to return type. If you change that to return option of type, that breaks everything in the world. Um, we can't do that. So, what do you do at that point? There has to be this fudge factor, basically. Um, the good news is you've got a bit of preparation for fudge factors in C sharp seven. Uh, so, usually, C sharp types and CLR types is pretty much a one-to-one -one mapping. That changed already in C sharp seven with um, tuple types. So. Tuple types are all represented by system.valueTuple in the CLR, but in C sharp, a tuple type can have element names. So you can have you can have a method um, of get minimum max. So it takes a collection of integers and it returns the minimum value and the maximum value having just done one pass through. Yay! And back before C sharp seven, you'd have returned um, tuple of int and int, and you do you know, return value dot item one and item two, and it would have been horrible. So instead, you declare that it will return int max comma int, sorry, int min comma int max. At the BCL level, at the CLR level rather, um, that's just returning a value tuple of int and int, and there's an attribute along with the return type that says, and by the way, if you're a compiler that understands tuples with element names, these are the element names in some bizarre encoding. Um, and the C-sharp language specification describes the various um, conversions between different tuple types that would be represented by the same value tuple of T and T, you know, T1, T2, um, but if they've got different element names, is there an implicit conversion there? And when is it gonna warn you if you get things wrong? Um, so there's already this bit of a disconnect. It's much, much bigger with nullable reference types. Um, but if you start your brain thinking that the type that I write may not be the type that's actually represented as execution time, um, you'll get there a bit, a bit quicker probably. Um, I don't think it's entirely coincidental that Matt Storgerson is the language design lead for C Sharp and was also had a big hand in Java generics which have the exact same kind of information, uh, the same kind of information loss that a list of integer is just a, or array list of integer is just an array list at execution time in Java. You lose that information. Um, so I don't know whether he has a particular interest in type erasure and what you can get away with without changing the runtime, um, but there, there are similarities there. Good question though. Uh, any other, yeah? Uh, so, if you have a field with a non-nullable reference type, then um, I would, leaving generics aside, because they make things screwy, uh, I believe that if you don't declare any constructors at all, you will get a warning saying, whoa, this is gonna be initialized to null, and it shouldn't be. And if you write a constructor that doesn't initialize it, um, that should give you a warning as well. Um, so, think of it a bit like a read-only field. Um, that if, it's, if you're not initializing it, something's wrong. It, it definitely doesn't create new, new objects automatically or anything like that, um, fortunately. Uh, where I need to check, and every time I've given a talk like this, um, I've said, I must go away and check this, and I never have. 
So what happens when you create an array? So it's one thing to have a constructor that you can say, okay, by the time this object has been constructed, it will be fine. Um, but if I do string 10, uh, sorry, string square brackets x equals new string 10, what does that mean? It's got to create an array. Creating an array leaves it with null elements, but I've said it's an array of not nullable strings. Um, I don't know what the compiler does with that at the moment. So these are all, these are really difficult things that the C-sharp team is saying, do you know what, despite all the screwiness of this, we still think it's better to have it um, with some in inconsistencies and execution time weirdnesses than to not have it at all. That's what they're reckoning at the moment. I will say that um, I believe if it doesn't get into C-sharp 8, it will never happen in C-sharp. They, they toyed with this before. I think they've had, before Rothin, they could never have even tried this. It would have been far too hard to even contemplate in the C++ version of the C-sharp compiler. Um, but they have toyed with it before and always said, yeah, turns out it's difficult. We'll leave it for another release. C-sharp 8, they said, right, it's the do or die card from Escape from Colditz. We're going to do this or just declare failure. It's not happening. Um, so that's why I said, did I say about 80% confidence before? Yeah, that's still, that's my current guess. Um, ask me on Tuesday and it might be different um, after I've spoken with uh, a bunch of the, the C-sharp team on Monday evening. There was a question over here. Right, okay, yeah, defaults. Um, yeah, so I, actually it's slightly slightly different. What is the value of default of string? It's a string question mark. That's weird. Um, or, or maybe it's typed as string, but clearly isn't a valid value for it. Um, so yeah, default is like arrays, a bit that just kind of doesn't fit in. Cool. Uh, yeah. Right, uh, okay, so the question is, does this run the risk of stalling language for years? Um, it does. I don't think it's gonna stall it past 2020. I think if they can't get a release out in 2020 um, that has nullable reference types in, I think they won't, they'll do something that doesn't have nullable reference types. There's, there are smart people on the, on the C-sharp team, really smart, and they understand that there is a need to have the other great features of C-sharp 8, um, and that sooner or later it's better to admit defeat. What they may well do is release C-sharp 8.0 with the majority of this working, and maybe some simple cases in this mini language for the attributes, um, but then 8.1 improves that, and 8.1 and 8.2 improves it again. I can definitely believe that. But the trouble is, you've got to get most of it pretty right um, in order to go to 8.0. Okay, what's the time? I think maybe one or two more questions, John. One or two more questions. Okay, so we really can get to the, the other features of C Sharp 8. I will briefly, before I ask for other questions, um, I'll mention the other features of C Sharp 8. Um, the one that I really, really love, which is um, straightforward, but again, makes me feel like an F Sharp writer, um, is switch expressions. 
So the syntax of switch statements is horrible at the moment. It you know, harks back to C. It's got ghastly scoping <coughs> rules. Um, so there will be switch expressions in C sharp eight, uh, which are there are various things you need to do to take a C sharp seven switch statement and refactor it into a, a C sharp eight thing. So we get rid of cases and the colons turn into fat arrows, and instead of switch value, you do value switch, and then you have a list of cases. So each one is condition, goes to, result, and then a comma at the end, because it's just a list of these things. Um, and it's really lovely. It feels like expression body members just applied to switch. And it feels even better because there are a bunch of new features for patterns, um, so you can do recursive patterns by sort of deconstructing. You can say, well, if this is a weapon and its damage is, um, and then you do a recursive match against int w, like, okay, right, so now we've got a new variable called w that has extracted the damage part of the weapon. So I meant to say d on w. Um, and then you can put more things in a guard clause here when uh, d greater than 500 or whatever it is. Um, so call things with patterns and there are switch expressions. Um, there are indexes and ranges which make it uh, not only easier to work with things like taking slices of an array or slices of a, of a string, but it provides one consistent syntax against arrays, collections, I think collections, um, strings and spans. If you haven't started looking at spans yet, um, you really should start looking. If you're not using recent versions of .NET Core yet, you may not be able to start implementing against them. But spans and read-only spans are a consistent way of representing, here's a chunk of memory and uh, with a length. And you can, take sub you can take slices of a span. And the reason that's really, really useful is best demonstrated with string. String.read, buffer, offset, length. Every time you have ever seen that triple of, oh, I want to have a, a, an array to put some data into or get some data out of, and I may want it to be part of a big array, so I'll put an offset and a length. That's a span, is a single parameter that encapsulates those three things, and you can create subspans and pass them around, and it's all really goodness. Um, so investigate that, and indexes and range will form better parts. Um, and the other thing that there are some demos of at the moment in the preview is async um, with for each statements, async iterators, as in yield return, um, and async disposable. So you know, dispose async um, methods. Okay, cool. So those are the other uh, features <coughs> I would have demonstrated. Uh, feel free to ask questions about those or knowable reference types or anything else. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it would be even bigger change than noble reference types. Um, at some point, the team needs to decide that they need a new runtime and a new language. And at that point, I think they will at least look at cons correctness again in a serious way. My understanding is that um, 
there's a tension between Kant's correctness that you can sort of cast away, um, at which point it becomes less guaranteed, and uh, Kant's correctness that is guaranteed by the runtime, but that then makes it really hard to code against. Um, so people have, have looked at this in detail, and it's been hard. That doesn't mean that there isn't a, a good solution. Obviously, if you're C++ programmers, you'll be very used to this. Um, and I think I'm not a C++ programmer, but my understanding is that C++ lets you just cast it away and say, you know, give me my shotgun, here's my foot. Um, and that just good C++ programmers presumably don't shoot themselves in the foot. Um, C Sharp is very much language more aimed at people who um, you just don't give the shotgun to to start with. Um, or if you do give them a shotgun, uh, then you throw an exception rather than actually making their entire program do something else. Uh, so that, that's very much in, along the lines of throw a null reference exception rather than doing arbitrary things, check buffer overflows, etc. And that's actually one area where the nullable reference types sort of move away from that a bit um, in that you will still get null reference exceptions. Things aren't as safe as maybe they looked. But at least the, the level of unsafeness is already is only what you had before. Um, so let's get back to constantness. I would like to see it, um, but probably not in C sharp. Cool. After all. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned like what you don't like about the language. What would you like to introduce in the language? Oh, uh, so what would I like to introduce in the language? Um, I gave a talk on this. Back in, it would have been 2011, I think, uh, possibly 2010. Um, it was quite terrifying. This was NDC Oslo. C Sharp 4 had just come out. And there were three talks back to back. There was Mads Torgerson describing C Sharp 4. There was me describing what I would like to be in C Sharp 5. And then there was a panel discussion between me, Mads, Eric, Eric Leppert, that is, and I oh, can't remember who the fourth person was, but someone else in Microsoft. Uh, it may have been Neil Gafter, but he'd only recently joined the team, so I'm not sure. Um, but it was sort of me as, I'm a very, very amateur language designer. I guess a bit more professional since being in the C-sharp convener thing. Um, but that's really, I can pick holes in things quite well. Um, and believe me, there are lots of holes. So in the... We use a GitHub repo, and we've got about 600 issues that we found with the C Sharp 5 specification. Um, most of which we've kind of fixed, but don't look too closely at type inference, because it's all broken. Um, and overload resolution, which is the really hard bits there are difficult things. Um, so yeah, there, there was me and these people who really knew what they were doing. And I noticed that when I was giving my talk about what I would like to be in C Sharp 5, Neil Gafter was sort of typing things into his iPad. Neil, don't write this down, it's rubbish, it's just off the top of my head, don't, yeah. Um, I wanted tuples, uh, I wanted a better, so one thing I would, would like to have been there from the start is a better way of expressing default values for parameters. So instead of what we currently have is you have to specify a constant as the default value for a parameter and then if you don't specify it, sorry, if you don't specify an argument corresponding to that parameter, then the compiler just rips the constant out and puts it into your code. Which means that you can't have 
a default parameter that um, defaults to now, for example. So, so you want to be able to log a message and it will come with a timestamp and there are cases where you would like to be able to put a timestamp from the past in or you know, handcraft a timestamp, but most of the time you just want now. Well, you can't do that. Instead you have, well, okay, I'll, I'll use a nullable date time and make null the default and that will then be converted to datetime.utc now. Um, and that's just a bit unsatisfying. I would like to see more around immutability. Um, and I saw Mads get this question a couple of times saying, is there going to be immutability in, in future version of C Sharp? And Mads said, with a completely straight face, why do you want immutability? Um, and it's, it's not that Mads doesn't know the benefits of immutability, but he was asking what benefits the audience thought about. Um, and what they thought was meant by immutability. So, uh, one example I love to give is, um, suppose you have a type that has a field, and um, when you call a method, it will check the value of that field. If it's zero, then it will do a computation. Otherwise, it will just return the, and store the result in the field. Otherwise, it will just return the value of the field, okay? Is that immutable or not with respect to that field? Okay. When I tend to ask with a, a more complete example, um, normally about half the audience says, no, that's not immutable, you're changing the state of the object. And I say, so Java Lang string, is that immutable or mutable? Oh no, that's immutable. Well, what does Java Lang string dot hash code do? It caches. Um, so there are different levels of immutability, but I would like to see something there. There are, there are ways that it could be potentially done with builder types. They've talked about um, record types before. Record types might happen in C Sharp 8, um, but there are interesting design decisions around that. Um, I would like to see something like record types that could help with immutability um, and help for using immutability as well, because immutable types are great until you try to use them and say, well, I really want the same value as this, but with one field changed. Okay, I'll have a with method, you know. Um, take person but with name Fred. Great. Okay, well, what if I want a person but with one change to a name that's in their address book? Like, oh, I'm going to have to do some cloning and, and all kinds of things, and that ends up being horrible. Um, so I would like to see a serious effort to make immutable types easier to build and then easier to use. Um, Beyond that, I think my main feature request for C-sharp would be just stop already and start a new language. Uh, I think we are approaching the stage, and I've, so I've been thinking this for like seven years or something, and I've been <laughs> wrong so far, so I could be wrong for another 10 years, um, but I would, I would really like to see what the smart people behind C-sharp would do if they had a blank slate because there are a lot of mistakes that we can rectify. Let's get rid of lock for one thing. Okay, It was a mistake before in Java, it's a mistake in C-sharp. Let's get away, away from um, array covariance. A string array and an object array are not the same thing. I don't want to have to pay every time I write something into an array for it to say, well, are you sure that's really the right type? Um, I would like to see a language with far more fault around versioning. 
Uh, versioning is, it turns out it's kind of hard. Um, and we're screwed in .NET. Uh, for all the, you know, people say, oh, we have semantic versioning now, it's, it's sorted. Okay? Uh, so if I release a, a new major version of my library, it's fine. Yeah, that's just not backward compatible, all is well. Okay, so now you've got two libraries, one of which depends on version one of my library, one of which depends on version two of my library. And I want to have an application that depends on both of those libraries. No, I need to go over and think about that a bit more. Um, yeah, we're, we're a bit screwed for versioning. Uh, that's partly a library issue, sorry, uh, partly a language issue, and it's partly a runtime issue. Um, I don't know as much about other languages as I should. I know that Java has uh, ways of dealing with this which involve let's have copies of all the versions and put them into different packages and when you compile it's sort of I, I shall use the different type and it's a bit unsatisfying. Um, but yeah, I think we need some more effort on that front. But I don't think we can do much to make versioning in C sharp and the CLR, or at least C-sharp as a language, better at this point? Good question, though, and I think I need to think about it more for other things I would like. I hope you've got something out of this time anyway. If nothing else, you should be looking forward to C-sharp 8, and for all my warnings around, all oh, the previews are a bit hard to install, at least find a virtual machine that you can kill afterwards. Um, unless you have good Hive support, then don't start installing it into, onto your production machines um, until Microsoft says it's safe to do so. But do investigate. Find out what's coming and get excited about it. It's fun. Thank you.